0: Morning, gentlemen. Good to see you today. We're coming to the close of uh, studying Acts. We're in chapter 27 today and 28 next Thursday. I just want to commend you for your devotion to this great book this past year. It's been a pleasure to study with you and to follow along in the great work of the Holy Spirit in expanding the church all around the world. And we see how dynamic it was from the very beginning after the Pentecost Sunday. Well, uh, we wanted to conclude, first of all, chapter 26. We didn't get a chance to really study for a few minutes verses 24 through 32 in chapter 26. So let's turn back there. And you remember that Paul is defending himself before Festus and King Agrippa II uh, with his half-sister Bernice who came in with him. And uh, he had told his story he had shown great respect for the court. he obviously was using remember a very common Roman court outline for his presentation. He also was accommodating uh, his Jewish audience and so he had two audiences he was working at the same time and he was communicating the gospel in a way that would be relevant to everybody in the room. just an amazing performance on his part. But then when we come to verses 24, where he begins to plead his case, and if you have your notes from last week, you can pull those out. If not, just follow along with me in the text. And in verses 24 and 25, the first thing he does, he, he pleads with his head. So we've got to use our heads. So we plead our case with our heads. And look how he does that in verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. And then look at this. I'm speaking true and rational words. True and rational words. So Paul claims that his presentation of the gospel is a very rational presentation. It's not rationalistic, but rational. In other words, you can't comprehend everything in the gospel through mere reason. Some have tried. They will always fail. Philosophers can take you as far as the mind can take you. But theology then brings in revelation. And the way in which we receive the gospel and communicate the gospel is with our minds, but our minds are apprehending revealed realities. So it takes revelation and also intellection in order to communicate. Paul uh, will not suggest that he's just going into an emotional frenzy or some spiritual exercise or talking mumbo-jumbo or something that uh, human beings in their right minds couldn't understand. No, he says, everything I'm saying to you is true and rational, including the resurrection. The resurrection is obviously transrational, but but we can explain it rationally this way. There was a dead body put into the tomb and three days later that same body came out alive. That's a rational statement. It's a statement about things we've never seen or beheld before. But it's true and rational. In other words, the Christian faith is rooted in history and in reason. So don't let anyone force you to go off into uh, irrationality in order to express or believe the faith. So we argue with our heads. And then um, notice how he, he handles um, this case. Uh, he is speaking to Festus and he calls him, uh, uh, he says, uh, most excellent Festus. So he's showing respect even for a man who has um, not treated him fairly at all. Then notice when we plead our case, we also plead with our hearts. And this is a passionate appeal by the Apostle Paul in verses 26 through 32. The first thing he does is he shows proper respect. And this comes from our hearts. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For there has not been this has not been done in a corner. Now here's how he's showing respect. You notice he, he's talking to Festus, but he's talking about King Agrippa. Rather than coming straight at King Agrippa, Paul is shrewdly using the lesser uh, character of Festus in order to make his statement to Agrippa. He says, Festus, I'm convinced that the king knows these things are true. He doesn't say, Agrippa, you know this is true. No, look how, look how tactful he is. And how he's using the moment to show respect to King Herod Agrippa II. Secondly, he does pop the question. Then he turns to King Agrippa. And he says, he can't help it, he says, he says King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? In other words, he knows that Agrippa is well trained in Jewish history and the Jewish writings, the Bible. And he, he, he knows that Agrippa has been into these things. And he... He's challenging Agrippa publicly to confess what Agrippa believes. Because Paul, remember, he says, the reason I'm in trouble is because of the hope of Israel, the the resurrection of the righteous. And Jesus Christ is the resurrection. So what are these Jews all upset about? So now he's going to look at Agrippa and say, do you believe, do you believe the prophets? And then notice before Agrippa is put on the spot to give some answer, Paul answers for him. I know you believe. Very respectful, and yet very challenging. Paul is not giving an inch on what he believes, nor is he giving an inch on the opportunity to evangelize. But he is showing extreme respect for human authorities that are all around him. Uh, so he pops the question, and then look at verses 28 and 29. This would be C on your outline. Uh, making an appeal. So we show respect, we pop the question, and we make an appeal. So Agrippa then answers... In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Which <laughs> is a very shrewd response. Notice that Agrippa is not answering the question. Uh, Agrippa is making fun of him. So you want to convert me, do you, Paul? Uh, everybody, I'm sure everyone. Ah, oh! <laughs> you want to convert the king, King Herod Agrippa II. But notice Agrippa says in such a short time. Hmm. Interesting. So if you had a little longer, Paul, maybe you could do it. But you, do you, you think you're going to convert me in such a short time? But then look what Paul says. Paul, Paul doesn't say, why not? Or, of course. Look what he says. This is a very passionate statement. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these change Chains. So Paul uses that moment to springboard into a statement that applies now to everybody. I wish everybody, rich, poor, powerful, powerless, male, female, old, young, here Jews and Gentiles everywhere would become as I am except for these chains. Gentlemen, here's here's the key. When you really come to know Christ and you know he's got you and that you've got him, the number one thing you would want anybody else in the world to have is what you've got. You see, that the Apostle Paul, is he doesn't think of himself as being the deprived individual here. It's King Herod Agrippa II in his purple robes and all of his concubines or whatever else he, he wants in life with all of his power and wealth. It's Herod Agrippa II who's deprived. And Paul knows it. Do you know it? Do you know that you've got everything that a man could ever have when you have Christ, and do you long, you long for all of your friends and even your enemies to have what you've got? That that was just coming out of Paul's intuition. It was his true passion, and he just shares it here from his heart. He makes an appeal to Herod Agrippa the second and everyone else. And then notice, lastly, when when we put our hearts into it, we just leave the outcome with the Lord. We just trust the Lord. So with our hearts showing respect, popping the question, making an appeal, and trusting the Lord. And then when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And uh, that statement is made by Luke because he wants he wants everybody in the world for all the ages to know that no Roman court could find anything chargeable against the Apostle Paul. There was no indictment that ever made any sense. There was no... Uh, conviction of any charge against him in a court of law and Luke wants to make it clear that Paul was a law abiding citizen he also wants to make it clear to the whole Roman Empire these people obey the law they don't disobey the law, these Christians and then he goes on to say and Agrippa said to Festus this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar Paul is clearly innocent but Paul is clearly still imprisoned and that's very difficult isn't it when you know that you've, your conscience is clear, you've obeyed the law, you've done what is right, and you still get fired, or you still are put on the outs, or you still are oppressed. It's very difficult. It takes trust in the Lord to know that he's up to something. And as we're going to see in chapters 27 and especially 28, God is up to something, and God is controlling everything. God is getting Paul where he wants Paul to be, and he wants Paul before Caesar's court as we find out in the letter to the Philippians, Paul gets in Caesar's court. Paul gets in under house arrest. Paul has guards all around him and he leads them to Christ. Paul, uh, God, rather, wants to reach those in Caesar's household and he's got a way to do it and it's through Paul's unjust imprisonment and dangerous transfer to Rome to get him there to have a voice for the gospel in Caesar's household. And sometimes... We just don't think of that at all, as we'll see in a few moments in chapter 27. We have other ways of thinking about the way history is unfolding, cause and effect, and our historiography. We, we do it in different ways. Christians have distinctive ways of looking at history and distinctive ways of looking at our own personal lives and the events that are unfolding. We'll see that in the Apostles' life in this next chapter as well. But here we close out. Paul has made a passionate appeal. And who knows whether someone came to Christ that day or didn't, but Paul discharged his duty and now he continues to trust the Lord as they walk, and say, walk away and say, ah, he could have been free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. How about this, Agrippa? He could have been free if the Roman magistrates hadn't been treating him unjustly for three years. And he would have been free then too. That's another way of explaining it. But they blame Paul for it because he appealed to Caesar. So be it uh, in the injustice of, of things. Paul is still in God's hands. Now let's look at chapter 27 and we're going to see that, okay, Paul now has defended the faith faithfully on five instances and this last one has to be the greatest of them all where Paul really unfolds the gospel, unfolds his calling to share that gospel and shows us how tactfully to contextualize the gospel in the moment uh, with those who are speaking to us. Paul now is going to uh, have a nice little sail uh to Rome. Let's look at it in verse twenty in chapter twenty seven. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidian, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone coasting along it with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lacia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the east, uh, the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying. Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now let's look at these 13 verses. And I want us to see, first of all, as we look at this entire chapter, saints sail into storms. Saints sail into storms. Bad things happen. Stuff happens. And it happens to saints. We get into storms. In these 13 verses, A... They are often unavoidable. They are often unavoidable. Well, how is this trip unavoidable for Paul? Well, Paul's being taken off in a destination which he he would not have been on had he not been treated just, unjustly by the Romans. He had to appeal to Caesar to save his neck because Festus was going to have him go back to Jerusalem and face, you know, those, those who would have hijacked him and, and killed him. So, first of all, Paul tried to avoid it through just facing the Roman courts and seeking justice. Uh, secondly, Paul tried to avoid it because, look, the man has already been shipwrecked at least three times. Think about this. Paul was a frequent traveler. <laughs> he had thousands of miles on his log. And he had been on the Mediterranean many, many times, had been in three shipwrecks. This would be the fourth. And Paul kind of knows the weather. I mean, okay, so he's a tent maker and a preacher, but he's been on the sea. He kind of knows what's going on. Those of you who fly around a lot, you kind of know when it's a rough day to fly, when it's not a rough day to fly. You kind of know how things operate. You've been around airports and airplanes, and you you don't need a whole lot of information from the pilot. You could actually advise him on a couple of occasions. That's what Paul's doing. They grabbed a ship that was a coastal ship. It wasn't really made for the high seas. And it went around the coast up toward Turkey. Then when they get to Turkey, they're going to catch another ship uh, that is seaworthy that's on its way from Alexandria, Egypt, to Rome, full of wheat, uh, a cargo ship. But when they get to Fair Havens, Paul says to them, this is a bad time to travel, boys. I've been on it before. I've been shipwrecked several times. You don't want to do this. And they do anyway. So stuff happens. And sometimes it's against your better judgment. But what you've got to understand is that even though you have done everything to avoid the storm, sometimes storms still happen. And let me, let me just point out something really obvious here. Paul is not getting into trouble because of something bad he did. And you guys are just like little five-year-old boys. When you get into trouble, you just assume, well, I did it, you know. You know, or you start defending yourself. Wasn't me, you know, because down deep inside you think you were the reason for it. Or, you're, what you're thinking is, you know, this bad stuff's happened to me. And you had happened, you know, those bad things I did when I was in a fraternity in college. You know, it's all coming back to haunt you know. The Lord, the Lord. You, you think if the Lord is somehow kind of like Buddha, you know, or like karma, bad karma, and you, you have these guilt consciences, you know, and you think that everything that's happening is ultimately because you screwed up. Looky here, boys. Uh, Paul is in trouble because he was obedient, and that often happens to Christians. You get into storms not because you were disobedient, but because you were obedient. Now we do get into storms because we're disobedient. I just, I'm just making the point that that's not always the case. When, when saints are following Christ, doing His will, it puts you into storms. One thing that we'll see very clearly in this entire chapter, but you can already begin to see it here, is one of the most important things you need to know when you're in a storm, when bad things are happening. And that is this, and it's from the beginning of the Bible to the end. God is sovereign over your storms, and God is sovereign over you being in the storm. One of my favorite examples is... The storm in Mark chapter 4, if you're a member of Second, you were in church a couple of Sundays ago, Rocky preached on this text and made a point of it. When the disciples got into the storm at the end of Mark chapter 4, notice how it starts in Mark four thirty-five. Jesus says to them, let us go over to the other side. Jesus is the one who suggested it. Jesus is the one who commanded it. And Jesus is the Son of God. I suppose that if he wanted to access the weather channel in his brain, he could have. He knows what the weather is. Matter of fact, Jesus was intentionally leading them into this storm. And you can see in that text there are a couple of reasons for it. We'll see some of the same reasons coming out of this storm. There's a reason for this. But Jesus leads them into it. And you say, why would Jesus do such a thing? You know, if you've been to the Sea of Galilee, you know it it wouldn't even be a half day's walk. Just to walk around the lake. It's not that big. It's like six miles wide, and 12 miles long. Come on, just walk around it. If you know there's going to be a storm. I mean, Peter was a fisherman. He probably could smell a storm. He may have smelled the one that day. He could have said, Master, let's not do it. But he obeyed the Master and what did it happen when he what happened when he obeyed the master he got into a ferocious life threatening storm so that he thought his life was over because he obeyed Jesus and uh, one of my favorite preachers Sinclair Ferguson says when he talks about why Jesus led them into the storm instead of taking them around it he said this is forever beneath the dignity of our Lord Jesus Christ to take us around a storm when rather he can take us through it And that's what God does. He'll show himself glorious by leading you into the storm and taking you through it. And he'll work many good things in your life, as we'll see, even with the Apostle Paul and those around him. What you must not lose a sense of is God's sovereignty in the storm. He is sovereign over the storm and he's sovereign over your being in the storm. Even if it's your fault, He's sovereign over your being in the storm and He has a purpose for it. You know, uh, Leslie Newbigin, a wonderful uh, theologian and missiologist who was a missionary to India for many years. And then when he came back to England, he began to write up many of the things he had learned. Bishop Newbigin wrote a book entitled uh, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. And he was talking about how Of course, we share the gospel in many different cultural contexts. The gospel stays the same, but the way that we share it is always different. In his analysis of culture, at one point, he says, you can tell people's religions by their assumptions. For example, he said, if there's a bad accident in the streets of Calcutta, a car runs into a rickshaw and kills the the driver or the, the runner. He said, here's what they will immediately say, bad karma. If you ask an American what happened, he would say, bad luck. If you ask the Apostle Paul what happened, he would say, God's hand. Newbigin's point is, those assumptions reveal actually what you truly believe it comes out without even saying it. It's the way that you assess things around you. Paul knew that God was in charge completely of every aspect of his life and every aspect of the universe, the heavens and the earth and things under the earth. So that's the first thing we want to notice, that sometimes these storms are inevitable. God is sovereign in our storms. We get into them often through obedience and sometimes we get into them through others' disobedience. But rather than getting so torqued and getting yourself in a knot because of all the injustices done to you, you've addressed all those, but then look up, get your eyes up, and realize that at the end of the day, this is God's hand. And that's the way Paul dealt with it. He was dealt with unjustly time after time after time. But ultimately he looks up to see the ultimate cause and ordering of his affairs. Now, let's look at verse 14 through 20. And here what we're going to see is they are sometimes severe. These storms are often unavoidable and they are sometimes severe. And I want us to look in, at the severity of this storm in verses 14 through 20. Now, when the, this is verse 13 actually. When the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the nor'easter struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Syrtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Wow. Folks, that's a serious storm. Your life is over. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this. I can remember as a teenager, <laughs> we, were, we had actually just lost uh, one of our starting basketball players, a friend of mine, uh, in death in an automobile accident. And it was in the winter. And the next weekend, uh, we were all just kind of moping around, of course. But we, it snowed, so some of us went up on top of Signal Mountain in Chattanooga. We were just going to go sledding, and I can remember I was driving the sled, and another basketball player was on my back, and we were just hauling down this road that's about a half mile long, in a in a um, residential neighborhood, and we st- we were barreling down the hill, and I saw a car coming into an intersection. It was just as icy as it could be. I saw a car coming pretty fast, and my mind was quickly calculating, you know, through differential equations, uh, (laughs) that this was likely to be an encounter. And sure enough, the closer I got to that intersection, I was, you know, I stuck my toes in. I was digging my toes into the ground. (laughs) and I was trying to steer over into the ditch and it was so icy, there was no steering on that sled. We were just barreling down. And here comes this car and he hits his brakes and starts to slide. So we're both just... It's just just horrible. And I saw my whole life of 18 years just pass right before me. It was over. I don't know if I've ever had that feeling. It's just gone. It's just... This is the end of it. What a way to go right under that car. It's going to go right over me. thump, 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 thump. You know? And... Uh, you just have a few moments, well, obviously I made it, didn't I? Uh, that car actually hit a little spot and got some traction and <laughs> stopped. The front wheel stopped right on my friend's back, <laughs> right there. But here Paul is facing something much more serious than that. I mean, there's any reasonable person would say, especially with the reputation of sailors in that part of the Mediterranean, it's over. It's a graveyard for sailors in, the, in nor'easters. So sometimes your, your storms are really, really severe. And following Jesus can flat get you dead. And all hope is gone. And don't feel as though you've been abandoned. You feel abandoned. You are not abandoned. God is in the middle of that severe storm and He is with you. Look how bad it can be. Now let's, let's look at verses 21 through 38. In fact, let's just read through the chapter and, and finish this part out. Since they had been without food for a long time, verse 21, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach." But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Okay, verses 21 through 38, they sometimes, that is the storms, sometimes turn into shipwrecks. So you can get into these inevitable storms, not of your own making, under God's sovereignty. Those storms are sometimes really severe and sometimes you're going to bust up. We call it bankruptcy. You have all sorts, physical bankruptcy, Financial bankruptcy, sometimes moral bankruptcy. You have all kinds of bankruptcy, but here you have it. Sometimes we our storms turn into shipwrecks. Now, I want us to notice several key things uh, that were happening under God during the breakup of this ship, during our worst moment. I want us to look what God's doing with you and me. First of all, in verses 21 through 26, our storms focus... Our faith. In that same story I referred to a moment ago, when Jesus had them in the storm, and then He rose up and He just told the wind and the waves, be muzzled. He spoke to them the same way He would demons. Be muzzled. And the sea was calm and the wind stopped. Then you can see the disciples over there sputtering and spitting out seawater and just completely terrorized and just stunned. And then Jesus said to them, where's your faith, boys? (laughs) You know they're just they can't believe that he's so calm and in control. I mean they were afraid of the storm. Now they're afraid of Jesus. And he but he says to them, "Where's your faith?" What he's saying is this is testing your faith. Look how leave your finger in Acts twenty-seven and turn over to 1 Peter, and that would be on uh, page two thousand four hundred and six or four hundred and five. Two thousand four hundred and five. First Peter verse 6 talks about our salvation and he says, In this, your salvation, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And then look, he explains what these trials are for. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So gentlemen, the purpose is to strengthen our faith. You feel like you're being completely torn down. Well, okay, you ran track. You played football. What did the coach do in the first weeks of your workouts? He tore you down physically. You could feel your whole body. You could hardly move. You're so sore. And then what happens? You get built up. You feel like you're being torn down, but what you're actually ha- ha- is happening to you is you're being built up and your faith is being strengthened. And when you're in a storm and you think you've just completely lost your faith and all you've got is just what Peter had, enough faith to go to Jesus and complain about the storm. That's about all the faith he had left. Jesus, do you no longer care for us, he said. Care for us. I'm going to die on the cross, spread eagle for you. What do you mean care for you? We, we doubt that He cares for us, but at least we have the wit to go talk to Him. And that's all the faith we're left with. Well, let me tell you something. The faith you were left with is the faith you had in the first place. And that's what storms do for us. It's like dross in gold. You heat up gold, the dross comes to the top, and they rake it off, and you purify the gold. So your faith is being purified when all this other crud falls off crud like lord i love you because you're the one who got me that caddy you know uh you're the one who gave me that hole-in-one when the odds were doubled you know Uh, you're the one who delivered me from my cancer and that's what your faith consists of until you're facing death and then you realize your cadillac's not very good and your your hole-in-one doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of difference and what you're left with is, is what you really had in the first place What storms do is they strip down all the crud and take the veneer off of your real faith. And then, just like a bush that's being pruned, when you cut it back, now the real thing can grow. And that's what happens. That's what Peter found out. Peter wrote 1 Peter, and he was the one in the boat with Jesus who faced the storm. And Peter knew the value of storms personally. And he says it builds your faith. And so storms focus our faith and build our faith, and this is clearly uh, one of the purposes. We latch on to His promises when everything else is falling away. I may have told you the story before about Elizabeth Elliot, married to Jim Elliot, who of course was eventually uh, uh, martyred by the Alca Indians in Ecuador. But Elizabeth Elliot, before she married him, was serving the Colorado Indians in Peru. And she... Uh, had been there for a year and she had struggled to find anybody who would cooperate with her and help her learn the language you have to have a language helper in order to translate you know to create an alphabet for the colorado language and then to take the alphabet and put it into the new testament she had finally found her, after a good while one man who was willing to help her she now has agreed to meet Jim in Quito, Ecuador, which is for her hundreds of miles away and up into the Andes. And later on she finds out that's when he's going to propose to her. So she is going to leave her work for a few weeks to go meet Jim Elliott. She meanwhile finds that her language helper has been murdered because the other Colorado Indians do not want him working with the white woman. And then she takes all of her language work that she had worked on, she puts it on the public carrier, which if you've been in that part of the world, you know how rugged it is, puts it up on the top of whatever bus or truck they have. When she gets out in Quito, it's gone. It's been stolen. So here she is. She calls it these strange ashes. After one full year of work, she has no language worker and she has No work to show for anything that she has done for an entire year. And here's what Elizabeth Elliot says about a moment like that. She says, It is in accepting what God has given, God gives himself. It is in accepting what God has given, God gives himself. So when everything is stripped away, what are you left with? God. And his word to you. And that's what Paul focuses on. He had a word. And when all hope was lost, God was not lost. And God's word was not lost. And Paul focused his faith on what God says to him. And what happens is, when we hit our big storms, forget all the frivolity of life. We focus on the ultimate things that God has said that we can stake our life on, and that's good for us. It's exactly what happens here. I remember one time going to visit an elderly woman in the first church I served, a dear, dear saint, which uh, I could, had time to brag on her. But I went to her bedside expecting to perform her funeral in a few days because it looked as though she was on her deathbed. And uh, I asked for multiple motives. I said, Ms. Richardson, what's your favorite hymn? I was thinking of her funeral. But I also want to know about her testimony. I want to know what made this woman tick. And she didn't just pick a favorite hymn. She picked a favorite stanza. Uh, And she said, she just recited it. She said, when through the deep waters I cause thee to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow. But I will be with thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. From how firm a foundation. What a wonderful testimony. And through the deep waters, I'll go with you. And I'll sanctify to you every distress you ever face. In other words, it will redound for your good. What a confidence. When she thought she was facing death, when everything was stripped away, children, grandchildren, traveling, eating, everything stripped away, what are you left with? God. And your soul is happy. There's a Christian man. Okay, it focuses our faith. Secondly, in verses 27 through 38, notice that our storms strengthen our obedience. Especially notice in verses 30 through 32, we are told, and as the sailors were seeking to escape, they pretended to be putting the anchors down. What they were actually doing, these were the sailors, the ones actually managing the boat. You had soldiers who were with the centurion to get Paul to Rome and other prisoners. And then you had the sailors who were manning the boat. These were the sailors who knew what they were doing. They were going to slip off and leave all these other 276 slobs to you know, fend for themselves. And the sailors were going to take the lifeboat themselves and get out of there. They knew what they were doing. And look what Paul says. He says, An angel told me last night, that non, one will be lost. But then he says to the, to the centurion, if those men get away, then they will not, we will not be saved. It focuses our obedience. When you get into the storm, you've got just a few things you need to do and they all have to do with you and Jesus. Let's just get it straight. So when you're in tough times, it will focus your faith, it will strengthen your obedience, it will help you, It'll, it will even get you ready for heaven. It prepares you for heaven. If you have some more time here, it will prepare you for better service here. Now what I want us to notice briefly in this moment is a classic moment of helping us to understand God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. You know, so often some of you have said to me, in my mind I just can't get it. If God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, what difference does it make what I do? If, if I'm free to do my responsibility and to do what I want to do, how is it that God could have already determined it ahead of time? How can those two things possibly go together? Uh, And that's a conundrum for most thinking people. Here's the answer. These are not conflicting ideas. As J.I. Packer says in his book on this topic, that it's like two streams that find confluence in one river. And here are the two streams. You are doing what you want to do according to your own motives and God is in control of everything. Now just look at the story. Paul has a revelation from God about what God is going to do. God doesn't tell us much about the future. He tells us the big things that we need to know. And they're decreed by Him. And they're going to happen. When He decrees something, it will happen. And sometimes He tells us about it. Here, he actually told Paul about this one. Nobody's going to be lost tomorrow. It's a decree of God, okay? Here we have it nailed down. The sovereignty of God, the decree of God, he has said what's going to happen. Then look what happens. Some of these sneaky sailors think they're going to pull off a getaway job. And Paul looks at them and notice what he says. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. If we don't have sailors, the ship is going to break up and people will be lost. Here's human responsibility. And he says, if, when. In other words, there's conditionality. There's responsibility. There's something that men must do in order to be saved. You say, okay. So explain it to me. Well, here's the explanation. You get to the end of the story and they arrive safely on land. Hey, all right, you got it. Why did they arrive safely on land? Well, two reasons. They arrived safely on land because the sneaky little sailors had to stay with the ship. Number one, human responsibility. Here's another reason they arrived safely on land. God decreed it from the first place. So you see that God's decree and His sovereignty over all things is so mysterious and so complex. It even includes the motives and responsibilities of human beings. And they confluently go together. So God's sovereignty does not deny the sailor's responsibility to stay with the ship. God's sovereignty does not deny the demand that you pray and plead for the lost and evangelize them. God's sovereignty does not deny that I'm responsible for every moral decision I make. And that there are conditions upon certain good things happening. But it's all under the sovereignty of God. Go figure. Your mathematical equations won't get you there. What you have to see is a much bigger picture of God's sovereignty over all things including human responsibility and decision making. That's the only way you're going to get there from here. Now, you you run into this, of course, in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Look at the verses right before that. He says... No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom He chooses to reveal Him. <laughs> so, but you still have the invitation. Come unto me, y'all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And who, whoever does come, they get rest. And they get rest because they came. But ultimately they have rest because Jesus chose to reveal the Father to them and drew them to Himself. Both are true. So one does not deny the other. They're both included in the mysterious providence of God. It's a wonderful. Acts 27 is probably the best place to go if you want to see how sovereignty and responsibility work together. Now, thirdly, notice in verses 39 through 44 that our storms prove his love. You can see God's plan here, especially in verses 42 through 43. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners. And why? Well, because if you're a soldier and you're responsible for a prisoner, we've already seen this, if he escapes, your head goes. So the soldiers had a legitimate opportunity to kill the soldiers. No one would have convicted them of anything. To be, I mean, the prisoners. If, if they wanted to secure the prisoners and be sure they didn't get away, they had the right to kill them rather than to let them escape. And that was a soldier's choice. Good old Julius. Do you notice something here? God's at work through the Romans. God's at work through all kinds of things around you. People who don't agree with you about Jesus, God's still using them. They're His pawns. Now it is true that Paul was undoubtedly evangelizing Julius. He had built a friendship with Julius. And Paul doesn't allow someone's official office whose office makes them responsible for Paul's oppression to come between him and that individual. And some of you who fought in warfare, you know what I'm talking about. One moment you could be trying to kill a guy because he's got the other uniform on. But if you ever have opportunity to talk with him, your duty is to love him and to treat him with respect, even though you have an office of being in warfare against him. And Paul was an expert at this. He loved people no matter what their office was. And he always was evangelizing people whose job was to make his life miserable. And look how, how God uses that. Julius is the one who tells the soldiers, you ain't doing that. You're not going to kill these prisoners. And there was one reason. He wanted to preserve Paul. And God shows his love. They end up on the shore safely. Now you say, hey, Wilson, fine. This is a great story. You know, Paul lives. Everybody lives. Great, wonderful. What about me? I've got cancer. I don't think I'm going to live. Well, this is where the Christian mentality conquers any storm. Here's the Christian mentality. Gentlemen, we don't just live for this life. Paul says, "If for this life we have hope this life only, we have hope in Christ, we are of all people, most to be pitied. If you've got your hope in what Christ can do for you, bound into your three score and ten right here on this earth, you're to be pitied more than the most unrighteous pagan on the face of the earth. You are a fool. The Christian thinks way beyond this present life. We believe in the resurrection. We believe it. It's in our assumptions about how we deal with our customers and the way we deal with our employees. It's in our assumptions about how we think about bodily health. It's in our assumptions about our own uh, relationships with other people. We believe we're coming back from the dead and we're going to be living a bodily life in a new heavens and a new earth. And at that point you will see He stills every storm. He conquers every foe. He fulfills every promise. And if you do not push your faith into the new heavens and the new earth, you are of all men most to be pitied. And if you are a health and wealth Pentecostal and you're trying to bring all the promises of God into three score and ten, you are very foolish. If you think that God's promises are going to be fulfilled in toto in this life, you're very foolish and you're only setting yourself up for massive disappointment and to lead other people astray. You must get your mind into the heavenlies. Paul said, get your mind off earthly things. Set them at the right hand of God where Jesus Christ reigns at His right hand. That's where you set your mind. And so we we have a vision for eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth with new resurrected bodies. And when that happens, you will rejoice greatly. Just like they rejoiced. Can you imagine what it was like not eating for two weeks? getting a little bit of bread before the, you get you know dunked into the ocean. And a raging storm with shoals everywhere and you're swimming around and you make it safely on the shore. And there's somebody who has a campfire all set up for you. Can you imagine how... Man! Whoa! Ha! How happy you are! You made it! Well, that cannot be compared to what it means for you to make it on the other side of the Jordan River. What it makes, means for you to get on the shore. You can't imagine the glory that goes to God from shouting saints who made it and who believed what they believed and base their life on what they believed and they they see God is faithful and fulfills everything He promised. Man, what a day that's going to be. And that's the reason that nothing gets us down in this life. If you do, you're foolish. You've allowed just like a little child to bring your happiness into these few moments as to whether you get a cookie or not. That's how silly it is. Stretch this out into the reality of the full chronological scope of your life and live this life in the context of the eternal life, not just the three score and ten. Now, that's how our storms prove His love. Now, lastly, let's look at chapter 28. we got four minutes. Let's use them. Chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. <laughs> oh, just, just more joy there, more cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them in the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Boy, it's a great day for Paul, isn't it? When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man's a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice, that is the God, decay, justice, has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Man, what a story. Let's look at three aspects of it. Verses 1 through 3, our service provokes our suffering. Our service provokes our suffering. You're going to get bitten by snakes, guys. I'm sorry. But notice that the the promise that is in the part of Mark that we're not sure is canonical says that when vipers bite you, you you won't die of their poison. It doesn't say you won't get bitten. (laughs) It just says you won't die of the poison. But anyway, Paul... Got bit by a snake. What a day. I mean, I've just been in a ship got after two weeks of not seeing the sun and the stars. And here, I finally make it aboard, uh, you know, I make it ashore and wacko, <laughs> viper hits me. Just don't be surprised when bad things happen, you know, in God's service. Secondly, verses 4 through 6, our interpretation reveals our religion. We've talked about this already. Our interpretation reveals our religion. And look what happens to people when they don't trust in Christ. They're just all over the place. He's an axe murderer on one hand and ten minutes later, he's a god. And both are just insane exaggerations and implications of taking things in history and trying to assume who God is. Look how wild the human mind is, the fallen human mind. If we don't have revelation, that's where we all go. Our interpretation reveals our religion. What's your interpretation? God's in charge of all things. How do you know that? It's revealed in the Bible. Thirdly, our bites become our blessings. Gentlemen, please notice that although there's all kinds of craziness going on, people think Paul's a god. Just like in Lystra, they thought Barnabas and Paul were gods and then they wanted to stone him to death. That's how fickle human beings are. But look how God uses it. His reputation goes everywhere, so he ends up in the wealthy man's house, Publius, because Publius was sick and Paul was shown to have some power over Vipers. So now Paul has an opportunity to evangelize Publius and to heal other people. He's taking his snake bite and he's using the snake bite as an opportunity to evangelize the entire island of Malta. Look what happens with a man who believes in the promises of God, trusts his sovereignty in every circumstance, and has his eyes open to the opportunities for the kingdom that come along even through our travail. That's what Paul does. It's an amazing story. Paul is taking the worst things that can happen. Talk about a bad day at the office, a shipwreck, a snake bites you, and then you're supposed to heal people of all their diseases. Now that 's a rough day. But with God's help, He'll take us right through the storm, strengthen our faith, strengthen our obedience, and use us in ministry. What a great God. Praise be to His name. Let's pray. Father, thank You for your sovereignty over all things in our lives, including the worst moments we can ever recall or will ever face. Help us, Lord, to know your presence and your purposes in our storms, that you do intend to strengthen our faith and our obedience, and you do intend to glorify yourself. Give us the patience to wait for the ultimate outcome of all things when we can look back and see that in every circumstance... You are working everything together for good for those who are called according to Your purpose and who love You. And Lord, go with my brothers now as they go into the world to serve You and to face inevitable storms from time to time and grant them Your peace. In Jesus' name, Amen.